Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast, whose mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Sajeev Saluja, your host for today's podcast, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Avnesh Thakur, an assistant professor of radiology at Stanford University. Dr. Thakur is a physician and researcher with wide-ranging interests in interventional oncology, nanotechnology, stem cell delivery, and islet transplantation, to name a few. In this episode, we will talk about bioscaffolds that are used to support islets in the transplant procedure. I'd like to ask you about the current sort of situation of islet transplantation. So if a patient comes into your office, what are some of the indications that might make you think they're a good candidate for transplantation? And can you talk about the current approach? Yes, sure. So just to kind of clarify, I think, you know, when we talk about islet transplantation, there are two main types of islet transplantation. There is the autologous islet transplantation, which is where we will harvest the islets from a patient undergoing a pancreatectomy, typically for chronic pancreatitis and intractable abdominal pain. And those patients typically come in through the gastroenterology clinic who are managing the pancreatitis, uh, and they will be selecting patients based on whether they feel that the pancreatectomy can alleviate the pain, and hence the islets can be retransplanted back in order to maintain um, autonomous uh, glucose regulation. Um, and so that's on the autologous side. And then from the allogenic side, um, those patients typically will be seen by an endocrinologist and they will initiate um, insulin replacement therapies. And for majority of patients, those insulin um, replacement therapies work, but there are sub, a sub-select group of patients um, known as brittle diabetics, where they can't maintain their glycemic control despite um, the therapies, um, either on insulin by itself, or even sometimes you know, using other um, augmented systems which can actually help that delivery. Uh, and what's really scary for those patients is their inability to perceive hypoglycemia. So that's when the glucose levels drop too low. Um, and for those patients, normally when me or you will become hypoglycemic, we will feel it and have a piece of chocolate or something and we'll feel pretty off. But for those patients, they don't. And that can actually be life-threatening. And actually hypoglycemic um, unawareness can actually lead to death in some scenarios. So for those patients, islet transplantation becomes an attractive alternative as a cellular therapy which can regulate their glucose levels. And so those are the patients who will be selected from the endocrinology clinic to receive an islet transplant. Now, you asked where the current status of play is for islet transplantation. Well, unfortunately for the US, it's currently from the allogenic side, not a reimbursed procedure. However, we have completed the um, phase three study with very promising results, and that's currently being evaluated by the FDA for final approval. It is approved in other countries outside of the US, including Canada, Europe, Australia, um, as a main kind of state therapy for these patients. Um, for the autologous, that actually is reimbursed, and it is a standard of care for those patients. And so patients who are coming in for their pancreatectomies can actually receive an islet transplantation if their facility is set up to actually deliver that therapy. Got it. So right now it's sort of uh, sort of the last uh, chance effort for a girl diabetic. If they if the other options aren't working, then right, right then right now, yeah, the transplantation is used. 
And so if talking about like trying to expand the patients that can get ILA transplants, what are some of the main challenges that you see right so now? So for the, for the um, allogenic, it's obviously the donor requirement, right? So one thing is that you're eligible for an islet transplant. The second is, is there a donor um, which can actually, that pancreas can be harvested and the islet's isolated and hence given to that patient. Now, in the future, we are hoping that in the next kind of five to 10 years, we will be able to create stem cell derived insulin secreting cells, um, which will take over the role of the kind of the donor donating their islets. Um, so we're hopefully that the, the, the supply um, issue can be sorted out with modern technology and innovation, you know, over the coming years. Um, but at the moment, you know, there is if and when the FDA approves islet transplantation, there's approximately in the US about 75,000 patients who are eligible, who meet the eligibility criteria for the procedure and who would be good enough candidates to undergo an islet transplantation. But we definitely don't have 75,000 immediate donors to um, treat those patients with. So, you know, we have to also look at that. And the other kind of scenario is with the autologous islet transplants, those pancreases, when they come out of those patients, are, are pretty inflamed and they've had undergone years and years of inflammation. And so harvesting enough islets, which is challenging in those pancreases, in order to give back enough islets to maintain glycemic control back to the patient is also going to be challenging. And they may also need to be supplemented with additional islets um, or potentially um, stem cell derived um, insulin screening cells in the future. So the main challenge you just pointed out is even getting the source of the source of the islets is challenging. So then assuming that that problem is solved, assuming you have islets to deliver, what are some of the challenges in, in actually delivering? Yeah, so then you can kind of group it now to what are the challenges. So now let, let's say you know, we've dealt with a source issue, we can now focus on when you actually have the transplant, how can you make that transplant as successful as its potential is, okay? The problem we currently have is that for islet transplants, we currently take the islets and we put them into a new microenvironment. So the way this is done is that we actually infuse them into a vein that drains into the liver. And so the islets set up home in the liver itself, and they then reestablish their own little microenvironment, which then becomes an autonomous environment in which they're able to sense glucose levels and secrete insulin into the bloodstream. Okay. So that's typically done via a percutaneous or minimally invasive procedure. But the problem is, is that when the islets are actually transplanted into the liver, up to 60% of the islet mass is lost within the first two weeks. And that's due to a combination of uh, an intense blood-mediated inflammatory reaction or an immediate blood-mediated inflammatory reaction. Um, and islets are exquisitely sensitive to inflammation such that they die if there is a significant amount of inflammation that's surrounding them. And the second thing is when, unlike other transplants, islet transplantation is very unique in that we, it doesn't actually get transplanted with a definitive blood supply. And so what do I mean by that? Well, when you transplant a kidney or you transplant a liver, you anastomose all the blood vessels so the organ is profused. When you transplant islets, you actually purify islets out from the pancreatic gland. And the act of the purification actually severs all of the arterial and the venous drain, arterial blood supply and the venous drainage of those islets. 
So the ileus essentially become devascularized. And then you push them into the liver and they then have to re-recruit and re-establish their own microvascular system. And that takes about two weeks. So during that two weeks, the islets have to survive by extracting oxygen and nutrients through diffusion from their surrounding environment. And sometimes that can get quite competitive. And that results in a lot of the islets not having enough nutrients and oxygen to sustain their functionality and hence their survival, in which case many of them die. So the combination of the inflammation and the combination of the lack of oxygen and nutrients due to not having a disestablished blood supply, which takes about two to three weeks for it to develop, resulting in about 60% of the islets dying in the immediate engraftment period following islet transplantation. And then for the autologous, because you're transplanting the patient's own cells back into them, there's no immune-mediated reaction. But for the allogenic transplants, that's when you're transplanting a foreign donor into a recipient there's an immunological based response, which is often controlled with anti-rejection medications so that every other organ transplant um, actually is controlled. But unfortunately, as I said it before, the islets are very exquisite and delicate structure. And they are also very sensitive to all of the um, uh, uh, immunoregulatory regimens that are currently um, employed for transplantation patients. So, you know, over this period of, you know, successive years, these islets, one bit, they get strained because they're working so hard because they lost 60% of their islet mass initially. And then you have obviously the immune system, which is still active, not only for the beta cells, but also for a transplanted foreign beta cell inside that patient itself. So, you know, our lab really focuses on the first part of that problem, right? The engraftment of we are looking at technologies and ways to improve that. And other labs are looking at various ways to modulate the immune system, especially for the allergenic islet transplant, such that when those islets are transplanted into a new patient, they can survive over a longer term. So for the 40% of the islets that survive, the issue then becomes getting the nutrients, oxygen and some... Correct, in the immediate period, yeah. Yeah, or for the longer period, for the longer term. So once you then, they typically take about three weeks, two to three weeks to establish their own microcirculation. And then once they have their own blood supply, then they can access oxygen and nutrients very readily because now they're completely vascularized within the liver. So in terms of the strategies that you're looking into, one of them is bioscaffolds. Can you talk about at a high level, what is the goal of this strategy and maybe how you got interested in bioscaffold? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I, I, I kind of place islet transplantation in one of two boxes, okay? Um, either we can deliver them into the blood supply, i.e. into the portal vein, which goes into the liver where they establish their new microenvironment. And I call that an endovascular-based transplantation, okay? Or we can have an extravascular-based transplantation. And so what is the advantage of that? Okay, so the bioscaffold is an extravascular, so it's not going to be, we can't put that into a blood vessel, okay? So we have to put those at other sites in the body, for example, in the omentum, which is a layer of fat that overlines the um, abdominal contents or underneath the skin. And the advantage of that is that that instant blood-mediated inflammatory reaction, which causes a lot of inflammation, is due to the blood system bringing a lot of the inflammatory mediators and activating the coagulation pathways. 
um, happens when you're placing it inside the blood vessels. So one of the advantages of a bioscaffold is that islands aren't necessarily subjected to the that IMBMIR reaction initially. That being said, you then trade that type of inflammation for another one, which is that you're actually implanting a foreign material inside the body, which can institute its own foreign body reaction itself. So we're trying to look at the different type of biomaterials, which make it more conducive for islet transplantation, something that's more biocompatible, and would hence reduce that foreign body reaction to that biomaterial. But by doing that, we also provide it with a three-dimensional platform that can be functionalized or supplemented to address some of the shortcomings. So for example, we can supplement these platforms with oxygen or different nutrients to allow the islands to have their nutrients and blood supply for their survival until they can establish their own blood supply. So the idea here is while they're trying to get support in wherever location, you're going to be attacked by some immune response and you need some sort of control over the environment that the islets are situated. Correct. So the advantage of a bioscaffold is you can actually functionally create the optimal microenvironment for transplanted islets. What are some of the materials? Are there any particular materials that you're interested in or classes of materials that are? Yeah. So, you know, islet transplantation with bioscaffolds, you know, there have been a couple of clinical trials already gone underway, which have used bioscaffolds made from PDMS, which is a synthetic polymer. Unfortunately, what's, what's now kind of transpired is that actually induces a very intense foreign body reaction. So the body senses this and it actually tries and walls it off with, with a fibrotic tissue. That's bad for two things. One, it's bad because that inflammatory reaction creates a lot of inflammation and the islets are susceptible to inflammation. So a lot of the islets die as a result of that. And two, as the body fibrosis uh, a capsule around the bio, that bioscaffold in particular, it limits the amount of diffusion and the amount of vascularity that can actually penetrate in and supply the islets itself. Okay. So what we did is we looked at something that was a little bit more biocompatible. And one of the major components of our extracellular matrix is collagen. And so, one of the bioscaffolds we have been developing in the lab has been a collagen-based bioscaffold. Uh, and we essentially have made a three-dimensional structure which has multiple holes inside of it. And there's small holes, and then there are big holes. And we've made it out of collagen, right? So it's very biocompatible and doesn't induce that intense inflammatory reaction for the islets. Now, the advantage of the big holes is we can actually place islets and any other cellular cargo we want within this three-dimensional matrix. And the advantage of the smaller holes is it actually encourages blood vessels to sprout through the bioscaffold, which hence increases its ability to be vascularized and hence hopefully then supply the cargo, which is the islet itself. And so the islets can then draw on those blood vessels to establish their own vascular supply. Now we've used this bioscaffold made out of collagen um, and what we've also done is we've actually, inside its actual matrix, put in a material which actually releases oxygen for the islands. So kind of baked into the matrix of this bioscaffold, we've incorporated a chemical called calcium peroxide. And calcium peroxide over time gets hydrolyzed, which means it gets broken down and reacts with water to create oxygen. And that oxygen then elutes out and can be used 
for by the islets in order for it to have its own blood supply, I mean, its own oxygen supply until it establishes its blood vessels. I see. So you're trying to sort of extend this period of time that the islets are, have access to oxygen until they're able to establish their own oxygen supply. Exactly. We're bridging it, you know, so we are kind of providing it with a lunchbox, let's say, until the islands can build their own kitchen where they can then make their own food for themselves, right? So until that time, you know, if the islands don't have any oxygen and nutrients that we can come onto that in a minute, if they don't have them, they're going to die. So we're going to artificially supply them with these essential items until they can get their own blood supply. And that, as I said, takes about two to three weeks. And then what happens to the scaffold after this two to three week period of time? Does it just Well, so the scaffold itself, you know, we have looked at long-term studies or we're actually extrapolating that long-term studies. The scaffold itself will slowly over time biodegrade. Now, when I say slowly, it kind of takes years, you know, four to five years to degrade. Um, and over that time, as it degrades, the body kind of grows around the bioscaffold such that the contents become incorporated into the body itself. So you don't want a bioscaffold that degrades too quickly, and you probably don't want a bioscaffold that kind of remains forever um, within the body. So you want to have that kind of nice equilibrium, and that's kind of where we've been focusing on the cryogel um, that we have, which actually degrades slowly. And obviously that degradation will be dependent on various factors, um, you know, temperature and acidity and so on and so forth. So it will depend on the location that the islets are actually, or the bioscaffold is implanted in. Now the oxygen generating material, that's a, that's a finite supply. And so we've been titrating the amount of that material, the calcium peroxide that can give enough oxygen for a period of three weeks, because after three weeks, we, it should have its own blood supply and hence its own supply of oxygen. And that's been quite a challenge. It's been quite interesting because what you don't want is you don't want a lot of oxygen on day one and then nothing for the next two weeks or three weeks. And you don't want a very high supply of oxygen because actually high oxygen is actually quite toxic. It creates a lot of free radicals. And again, the islets are exquisitely sensitive to oxidative stress. So what we've been working on in the lab is how do you create enough oxygen that is beneficial for the islets, but not too high that it creates a lot of oxidative stress, but not too low that it's not actually supplying them with enough oxygen. So this very fine balance that we've been titrating in the lab. And one of the big advantages of the way we have kind of set up our bioscaffold is that this is baked into the matrix of the bioscaffold, which means that the same amount of oxygen technically will be looted at all different points of the bioscaffold, which means islets at the center will receive oxygen just the same way as islets on the periphery of the bioscaffold. So there won't be a preferential kind of oxygen gradient um, as opposed to other technologies which have just implanted oxygen generating discs at one end that will obviously be great for the islets closest to that, but not great for the islets located furthest away from that. So we've actually baked it into our matrix to uniformly supply all of the islets which are loaded into the bioscaffold. So the calcium peroxide is kind of like the fuel that gives you oxygen and then you're trying to control the rate at which this fuel is burning. Yeah. Getting exactly. exactly, perfect, perfect analogy for that, yeah. And so we vary the concentration of calcium peroxide and so we've been finding out, you know, what is the best and optimal concentration relative to the size of the bioscaffolds that we're creating. And then when you're, you, you mentioned that there's 
a few different sites in which you can deliver the bios capitals. Can you talk about like some of the challenges or trade-offs there? Yeah, so you need to have something which is capacious enough, which will accommodate a three-dimensional matrix. And again, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer here. I think, you know, multiple groups, including ours, are looking at what is the best site for islet transplantation with bioscaffolds. Um, the most, I would say, clinically translatable and easy, I would, I think, would be underneath the skin. But that can be a pretty challenging place to place a large bioscaffold uh, and also have it resist trauma, for example. For example, if you get knocked on the arm and if it was in the arm, you could damage the bioscaffold or you could injure the eyelids. Or inside the abdomen, which is a little bit more protective, but would require a little bit more of an invasive procedure in order to implant that bioscaffold in that location. Um, other locations are slightly more challenging because again, if you start putting them next to or near organs, if they start to anneal or fibrose onto that organ, it'll be difficult if you had to extract the bioscaffold out. Now this becomes incredibly more important as we start to transition potentially into other beta cell replacement strategies and therapies and cells, for example. Because let's say one of the one of the things which is always slightly unnerving with with um, stem cell derived products or stem cell derived cells which can make insulin is they have a teratogenic potential potentially, um, and so the advantage of a bioscaffold is that if any one of those cargos change their phenotype and become malignant, you actually want to be able to pull out the bioscaffold, okay, before those cells grow and disseminate around. And so as we start to think about that, that becomes a much more of an attractive solution than delivering the stem cells into the liver. And then they're having potentially a tumor grow inside the liver because that's now going to be a real big problem to try and take those cells out away from the liver itself. So you want to have easily accessible sites that resist trauma, that, are, that can also be fairly well vascularized to help promote the revascularization of the islet. And that's quite tricky. So as I said, the omentum is the lead candidate as well as the subcutaneous tissue and the subcutaneous spaces at the moment. Does that choice of the target delivery location or even the bioscaffold itself alter the function of the islets? Like their ability to respond to glucose and secrete insulin? So yes, and again, you know, so when you're looking at where the islets came from, so the islets came from the pancreas. Um, and so technically they are sensing the arterial blood supply to the pancreas, and then they release the insulin <clears throat> actually into the portal vein, which is why the liver makes most sense as well for the islets to be transplanted into because a portal vein drains into the liver. Now, the portal vein also drains a lot of the mesenteric or the bowel circulation into the liver it itself to be detoxified. The omentum can have drainage along that pathway, but the subcutaneous tissues will have what's called systemic drainage, and it won't go by that pathway. So that can alter the amount of insulin that's uh, effectively being sensed by the body at any particular point in time. It could delay some of the glucose homeostasis time points um, relative to what they would have been if they were initially just located within the pancreas itself. And all these factors play an important role in deciding how physiological the response ends up being. So you could imagine, do you perhaps need more islets 
in the subcutaneous space than potentially yeah interestingly in, in our animal models yeah sorry to interrupt you over there but yeah you're perfectly right because in our animal models you know there are various animal models used for eye transplantation we typically use the renal subcapsular space in small animals because it's easily accessible it's very nice to assess the islet response and you can actually interrogate the islets uh, post-mortem to actually look at their structure um, as well as their surrounding amount of inflammation um, that the islets actually um, endure we actually found that we used the epidermal uh, epidermal fat pad which is a surrogate of the omentum uh, epidermal fat pad in a mouse which is a surrogate of the omentum in a human and we actually found we needed a lot more islets to achieve glycemic control than what we would have done at the kidney side so the answer to your question is yes i know depending on the site will depend on how many islets would potentially be needed to restore glycemic control. But we also want to kind of put that into a broader context, which is that at different sites, you may have more islets survive your transplantation. So if we can get that 60% down, then yes, by itself, the other sites may require more islets, but if we can create a better microenvironment, to ensure a greater number of islets actually survive the transplantation process. Ironically, they actually may require less than intravascular, but it would need the augmentation of the bioscaffold platforms in order to achieve that in the end. So how far do you think bioscaffold and islet engineering itself can take us? Do you think that we'll be able to get this target number uh, with just bioscaffolds or will immunosuppressives or immunoengineering also be required? Yeah, I think, I th I think both. Um, I think it's definitely going to be a, as I said to you, it's definitely going to be a team effort. It's definitely going to have to look at different parts of the islet transplantation process, whether you categorize that as immediate engraftment and then short-term survival and then long-term survival. And different factors will play a different role in each one of those groups. But ultimately, you're going to need to address all three of those groups in a coordinated way for the maximum benefit or the maximum yield and potential of the islets to survive the whole process and be not only survive, but also function well over a prolonged period of time. Is there anything else that you would want to talk about in terms of future directions or? No, I think, you know, I think, I think bioengineering and, and bioplatforms uh, hold incredible promise. As I said, you know, we've, we've talked one in detail here with bioscaffolds. We also have nanoparticle platforms, which can actually deliver nutrients to the islets itself. Um, you know, we also work on cellular therapies, which can be combined with the islets, which can then be placed inside the bioscaffold. So you can actually augment different cellular therapies with the islets in the bio in the bioscaffold. And then you, you know, we worked on, I said the nutrients within the microparticles, uh, sorry, nanoparticles, and we actually have microplates, which we have loaded with anti-inflammatories. And again, all of these things need to be carefully tested with each other. Um, it sounds all great, but we also got to remember that each one of these needs to be profiled independently, as then as well as together in order for it to be an approved, FDA approved and a scalable pathway for patients. So the first thing at the moment in the lab setting is to identify what are the target platforms and approaches to use. And then we need to look at them in detail and analyze the components of each one of those in both the short and long term. 
And then we need to look at them together. And do they have any interactions that, are, that we're not aware of? Or do they function as single entities? And what happens to them uh, uh, over the long term? Um, if they don't get bioabsorbed, um, you know, do they stay there? Do they induce an inflammatory reaction? Do they just break off and then disseminate individual components around the body? These are very important questions to answer when we're dealing with biomaterials. So we want to really kind of not rush the preclinical science aspect, uh, but build up a solid foundation, which can then be robustly clinically translated in a, in a concrete and uh, concrete way with a lot of confidence. And that, that's, that's currently where I would kind of say is the most important thing is that, you know, you don't want to rush this process, but you also want to make sure that you're progressing along that pathway at a good rate. So if a young scientist were interested in islet transplantation, there's so many different areas that they could focus on, but what would your advice be? Like, what are the maybe one or two key areas that are lacking in, in knowledge and, and skills? No, oh, I think, you know, as you, said, as, as you said, you know, it's definitely a team approach. You know, it's definitely, you can't, you can't be good at everything, you know, so you know, for more intelligent people than myself who deal with the immune system, it's an incredibly complex system. Um, and, you know, I don't pretend to be, you know, an expert in the immunology. I think it's very important to have an appreciation of the, the, the immunology aspect of the, um, of the process, not only of the process of type 1 diabetes, if you're going to do the allo setting, but also of transplant and transplant rejections as well. Um, so it depends on what your interest lies in. If you're more interested in that aspect, then you're going to be dealing with the latter phases of the islet transplantation procedure. If you're more interested in the technical aspects, then you could be interested a little bit more in the delivery aspects of islet transplantation. And if you have more interest in the biomaterial side of, um, of science, then you could be interested in developing new bioplatforms, be it on the bioscaffold, the microplates, or the nanoparticle platforms all of which can be added into this spectrum. But again, it requires everyone to work together and no one person or one group will be able to control all of those, right? Because that's just dilution of expertise. So it requires you to focus on an area and to build it out and hopefully form partnerships and collaborations with other people who work from the other areas, such that the combined approach then eventually can get clinically translated to benefit patients. So there's plenty of work still left. Plenty of work, plenty of options. It's one of the reasons that, you know, I am very interested in the field. Um, you know, it's a very multidisciplinary and exciting field that you can approach from all different angles to suit your own kind of interests at the end of the day. Wow. That is very exciting. Thank you so much. Um, is there any closing comments or something you would like to say? No, I just think that, you know, we are... We're definitely all trying to work hard uh, to help cure type 1 diabetes or at least provide therapies that are sustainable. Uh, I think the future looks bright. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of good work being done by a lot of people. Um, and I'm hoping we're going to be seeing fruits of everyone's hard labor very shortly. Um, and we're seeing obviously fruits now, but you know, the goal is to eventually cure this disease um, or eventually have a therapy that can completely replace it and be long-term and sustainable. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited about seeing the upcoming work and uh, hopefully something soon can uh, be delivered to patients. Great. Thanks a lot, Sanjeev.